I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of 16 books. Yes, I said 16. Uh, if you listened just uh, a week or so ago, you would have uh, you would have heard me say 15. But she has another book out, and it's called The Choice. And this is a novel, and it is a must-get. And we're going to find out a little more about it. And uh, again, she's the subject of a uh, of a lengthy radio uh, series, and now, of course, the host of her own radio show and podcast. You could hear her on 124 different outlets and counting, maybe more by now. And uh, she's the subject of a documentary. Frank McKay here with Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. Doc, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. And you are still struggling with uh, time lag because you came back from Europe and from Ukraine, the Ukrainian border, and even into uh, Ukraine. And you uh, you told us about that in the last two uh, episodes <laughs> of the Florence Weinberg show. Uh, and I'm full of admiration for you and hope you don't go to sleep during this I think I'll, I'll adjust, you know, it's just your body, you know, adjust to it, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm actually fascinated by this book. This came out of left field for me. I knew you were working on, on your memoir and I know you were working on, on a medical uh, uh, book with, uh, with other, uh, with other folks, right. With a doctor, you were working on, on something, but uh, this is, uh, this is fascinating to me. The choice. Can you give us a summary? I I will talk about uh, my career and how this book came about, and I will, of course, talk about the book itself. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, doing a, a pretty much monologue from now on, yeah. and even maybe if I have time, read some uh, some poetry, because the hero of the book is known as a poet, mainly. Uh, but anyway, I will go into it right now. And if you can, uh, give us the full title. I just said the choice, but... There's a subtitle. Yes, it, the subtitle is Jean de Sponde, Kingmaker. And the name of the hero of the book, uh, the, it's written, the book is, my book is written in the form of his memoir. So it masquerades as the man's memoir. So it follows his life detail by detail. Uh, and I had, uh, I did the research for it in uh, the early, very early uh, 21st century. So um, anyway, today uh, I'm going to do something quite unusual, uh, which is more typical of what I dedicated 36 years of my life to, uh, namely teaching and study. Hmm. And my special study uh, for the Ph.D., was French Renaissance, but I had an MA already in the Spanish Golden Age, and that meant those two uh, two specializations meant that I had studied Spanish literature and history, especially the Spanish Golden Age, which is the Renaissance in Spain, and then I went on and got an MA PhD in the French Renaissance and learned about and wrote about French Renaissance authors. So this novel is actually an outgrowth of my career. Mm. And as I was studying for the PhD, I ran across a poet who had only recently, and this was studying, I was studying for a PhD in the late 1960s, and uh, this poet had only recently, quote, end quote, been discovered, and that meant some time in the 1920s, so about 40 years before. And he was on the spawn. And I read his poems, but I didn't study his life at the time, but he moved me deeply. His poems were really amazing. There were love poems to his sweetheart, Anne, spelled A-N-N-E, in the French way. And there were his musings on religion and his meditations on life in general. And I vowed to myself that if I ever got a chance, I would write about him. So I retired from teaching, never having had a moment's uh, 
and almost free time to write about him at age 65. That's me, not him. And uh, rather than continuing to write scholarly treatises, and I had already written four books by that time and many articles and so on, that I would start writing historic novels. And finally, I was free to write about Jean Despond. This new book, I had done the research. I retired in 1999 and at age 65. That's how old I was then. And I went about lo uh, looking into his life at that point. And so I did all that research in the first two years or so of the 21st century. And I wrote a draft of this book. But then I put it aside because I uh, got into writing about the history of San Antonio, where I uh, had recently settled. And that continued writing about the Southwest for a while until finally, after many years, this past year, I decided I would take that draft of a novel and put it into final form and publish it. And so uh, the book is here in front of me, and I will tell you a little something about Jean de Spond. He was born in 1557 and died in 1595. He was only 38 years old when he died. Mm. And he was born into one of the most violent periods uh, in French history. It was the second half of the 16th century. And France uh, was having a civil war. But it was a war of the Protestants against the Catholics, or the Catholics against the Protestants, depending on which side you're on. And they, uh, the war killed uh, several million people. Wow. It was the, wow. Yes, it was the bloodiest war. Uh, the uh, massacre of St. Bartholomew's, excuse me, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre that took place in 1572, uh, that, that was uh, 15 years or so into the war already. Uh, the uh, queen, Catherine de' Medici, had convoked the Protestants to come to Paris uh, because there was going, there were going to be peace talks, and what happened instead was that she ordered. Apparently, she did. Nobody really knows who ordered the massacre, but apparently, uh, we think she did it. Uh, she ordered the massacre of all the Protestants who came to the peace talks, and so that was something like three thousand Protestants who were massacred that day. So that shows you the scale of slaughter that was going on. And, of course, the Protestants tried to take revenge against the Catholics for having done that. And the uh, hatred between the two was, uh, uh, was red hot, it was violent. Uh, the Guise family, that's uh, spelled G-U-I-S-E, they were uh, fervent Catholics, and they lived in the eastern part of uh, – uh, they were a noble, uh, noble family in the eastern part of France. And uh, they took over the, uh, the guidance of these wars, and they were pro – the pope was, was for them, and they were pro, uh, for the pope, obviously. Uh, and so they were leading this war. And the, uh, I should say something about the Protestant background, uh, where they came from. Uh, Luther, of course, as everybody knows, I think, posted 95 theses against the Catholic Church uh, and its, its practices at the time in 1517 on the cathedral door in Wittenberg uh, in Germany. And those protests against the abuses of the Catholic Church were widely believed already because uh, people were getting uh, unhappy with the way the Pope was running things and had been running things. The ritual, ritualistic uh, uh, church services, the fact that 
the church uh, services were in Latin and the uh, people couldn't understand, nor, uh, and so they did, paid very little attention <laughs> at Mass. They were uh, praying the rosary, probably, or, or gossiping. Uh, and, and when the uh, host was raised, of course, they shut up for a moment or two, uh, and uh, the rest of the Mass was more or less a, uh, a, a jumble of, uh, of gibberish. And, uh, and so, of course, the people decided that was an abuse. And so uh, Lutheranism spread wildly and quickly. In France, there was a... He was Swiss, actually. Uh, his name was Jean Calvin, John Calvin. And uh, he decided he was going to uh, start a version, his own version. He was a minor uh, clergyman in the Catholic Church at the time, and, but he decided he was going to adopt the Lutheran line, except that he was going to make it much more tougher on the faithful uh, because he believed in predestination. If God was omniscient, then he must know uh, the choices that people would make. Uh, he wasn't going to determine their choices. They were free to make uh, the wrong choices if they uh, decided to. Uh, but God would already know uh, whether they were going to be damned or going to go to heaven. And theoretically, as people worked this doctrine out, they realized that that meant that you were predetermined to either to go to hell or heaven. And it didn't matter what you did during your lifetime. You were already uh, destined to go to one place or the other, so you could be the wickedest thing on earth, commit crimes and murders and so on, and you would still go to heaven because God had foreordained it. Or um, you could be the, the best, uh, most Christian person on earth and then the, uh, do good for uh, your fellow man all over the place and go to hell. Uh, and <laughs> so that was the doctrine of pre predestination. And the other thing was public confession. So you didn't go to the priest and uh, quietly tell your sins to the priest and uh, then do your penance as the priest prescribed for your sins. You had to stand up in front of the congregation and tell the congregation how wicked you were, and you were not allowed to tell why you did what you did, that you had your reasons for for instance, getting into a fight and accidentally killing somebody. No, no, you had to confess yourself as a murderer, and and so on. But it was public confession, and then the uh, the minister, the the, uh, the, the father uh, of the uh, of the congregation uh, would prescribe your punishment in public and tell tell you how bad you were and why you deserved the punishment, which would be severe. So Jean Despond, actually, this goes, uh, the first person to be converted to the Calvinist religion was the sister of the King of France. The King of France, uh, early in the, the 16th century, was Francis I, François Premier. Mm. He was uh, in the Valois family, and the Valois family uh, then remained uh, the uh, that was the king's family until they finally died out um, before the, the end of the uh, of the 16th century. But anyway, the sister Marguerite. Uh, was very much impressed by Lutheranism, and when Calvin came along and brought his version, uh, she, of course, had uh, married and became the queen of a province, or rather, uh, we would call it a, a country, uh, to itself. Mm -hmm. It was Navarre in the south, and it's now Navarra, uh, which is a, a province in Spain, or a state. Within the, the kingdom of Spain, and so she was Marguerite de Navarre, and her dynasty. Then she uh, she adopted 
uh, Protestantism, and uh, the Protestants of the day were called Huguenots or Huguenots mm. in the English pronunciation. And Jean de Sponde was born to a noble family very close to the king, and the king was uh, related, his grandmother was Valois, and so he was related to the royal family. And he, uh, he was also uh, the first uh, Bourbon king. The Bourbon dynasty was, began with him. And uh, so anyway, he, uh, uh, his, his grandmother was Valois. His mother was queen of Navarre. And he, of course, when she died, and I think around uh, 1570s sometime, uh, he, the king, the, her son, her eldest son, uh, Henri, so Henry, uh, ascended to the throne, and he was the king, the Protestant king of Navarre, and the leader of the, uh, of the troops against the Guise uh, on the battlefront. Okay, so this is historical background. Right. Wow. And um, let's see. So, um, so the book then uh, follows the life of Jean de and because he uh, was probably one of the closest people that uh, uh, Henri de Navarre had as a friend. And he begins, the book begins uh, with his life as a student in Basel, Switzerland. And of course, uh, Switzerland was pretty much all Protestant, so Huguenot at the time. And he was finishing his law degree there. But he was interested in other things as well. Uh, the classical literature, for instance, Homer and uh, uh, Sophocles and Aeschylus and people like that, and uh, and also uh, Roman literature as well. So uh, uh, Virgil and Horace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he had already written a book. Uh, he had translated the Iliad into French and annotated it. So it was an annotated French edition of Homer. And he had dedicated uh, that book to the success, Calvin's successor. Calvin was dead by then. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, a man named Théodore de Bez had taken the, the leadership of the Huguenot community. And he was in Basel at the time. Now, the book opens with Jean in a laboratory because one of his other great interests, besides reading and uh, annotating uh, classical literature, ancient literature, uh, the other was something also related to classical uh, ancient literature, and that was alchemy. And most of my listeners probably know what alchemy is, but some people don't know, and it was the precursor of chemistry because uh, it, uh, they used all sorts of very dangerous chemicals, uh, acids like sulfuric acid and so on, uh, which they would uh, pour over uh, various um, metals or stones and so on to see the whole point was um, was trying to uh, transform. Yes, uh, Frank, tell me. I was me. say gold is, is trying to find gold, right? Or trying to yes, they were trying gold. to transform lead into gold because <laughs> it was similarly heavy and soft <laughs> but had no, uh, no other similarities to gold, but they were trying to change it. And uh, uh, Jean had a, uh, an ancient manuscript, a book, uh, alchemical book, and he was following a recipe to change silver into gold. And he is in a basement in a laboratory, and, and uh, he is telling uh, what he's doing uh, move by move. And so I recreated the conditions, the lab, 
the temperature, the the air he was breathing, which was mostly not air, was uh, fumes uh, from acid poured over the silver, um, and uh, uh, the silver is transformed. It shrinks, it becomes heavier, and it turns into a gold color, and he is convinced that he has uh, changed one substance into another substance because he, he knows that silver is something of itself and in itself, and gold is something else. Mm. So if you can change one substance into another, he, he knows that the Catholics believe that the uh, wine and the wafer at the Mass are changed into the body and blood of Christ, changing one substance into another. So if a mere human being can do that, then if God, of course, do that, if he, if he so desires, and therefore the Catholics are probably right. <laughs> and Jean's, Jean's faith, and Jean, I should rephrase that, Jean's Protestant faith has been shaky right along because he hates uh, the public confession. He's not a wicked man, but uh, he is uh, somebody who's, who doesn't read the Bible all the time the way he should, uh, and he also doubts the doctrine of predestination along with a few other things, and so his faith, faith is a little shaky. And now it's even shakier. Mm. But he has dedicated his book to Theodore de Bez, the successor of Calvin, and so uh, he, he is not surprised when... He is called in to uh, Theodore de Bez's office. He expects to be congratulated and so on. He's, he has also sent the book to the King of Navarre, who is his sponsor. Uh, he's being subsidized. His education is being subsidized by the king. Uh, so the king has his book, and so does Theodore de Bez. But to his surprise, Theodore de Bez... Uh, it reams him out thoroughly because he is a sinner. He has studied classical antiquity and not the Bible, and he is doing the devil's work because alchemy is the devil's uh, recipe. I mean, a series of recipes that are hellish, and uh, so he is thoroughly, con uh, thoroughly condemned and ordered to appear at. Uh, at services the next Sunday and to make public confession. And he is going to reveal all of the misdeeds of Jean de Sponde in public to the heart of Huguenot, uh, the heart of Huguenot, the Huguenot faith, and he will be disgraced for life. Well, <laughs> he decides he doesn't want to do that. And so he sets out to go back to Navarre. He, he leaves on Friday. <laughs> and so goodbye, Basel, goodbye, uh, center of the Huguenot faith, which was Geneva for Calvin and Basel for Theodore de Bez. Anyway, he goes uh, to Geneva first because his brother is studying there. Yeah, brother seven years younger than he is, and who is his favorite. And he is sort of a second father to, to that brother, and he's trying to teach him how to write poem, poetry, the rules of the poetry of, at the time. Anyway, he visits his brother, but his brother is out of money completely, so he leaves what cash he has with him. Then he sells his horse also to, to have enough money to get on home to buy food on the way and, and to uh, pay lodging here and there. Uh, so he goes on foot then from then on. And all of this is historical, by the way, uh, because of the writings that he left behind. Anyhow, so uh, he has adventures on the way. And uh, I'm going to read you the uh, chapter headings and comment on them as I go. I'm not going to reveal the end of the book, but I will let you know more or less how, what, how it goes, because this is not just a historical, dull historical uh, story. This is an amazing story of all kinds of adventures. 
So he begins in the laboratory with uh, changing the silver into gold, and we still don't know whether he actually did, <laughs> uh, because uh, the uh, the authorities, uh, the alchemical experts at the time, doubted that he had actually done it. And so they sort of poo-pooed what he had done. But nonetheless, there was this object that was softer than silver, and a gold color, and it had shrunk some, um, and uh, nobody could explain how that happened. Uh, I mean, the recipe was there, but they simply didn't believe that one substance had been changed into the other, so that that remained uh, in his past. Anyway, uh, he uh, he has he's accosted by. Uh, highwaymen who want want to rob him and uh, who want to kill him if he's a Catholic. I mean, he's already in uh, Huguenot territory by that time, uh, and he explains who he is and they, they uh, that he's from a noble family and he's the uh, ward of the king of Navarre and uh, uh, in his. Uh, ra- rather ratty clothes by that time and worn out shoes uh, they simply can't believe him but he says well search me if you want money you aren't going to find any and so they do uh, and since he has stood up to them they let him go they don't they decide not to kill him uh, because he has no crucifix no no rosary no nothing the catholic would be carrying along and he swears that he's protestant and right now. 
uh, France being the big country and Navarre a small country, and therefore fewer soldiers in Navarre. So he sends Jean, who already knows several languages, uh, to Switzerland and Germany to recruit, to recruit troops. And that um, chapter is chapter four. Uh, I should say, the chapter one title is Alchemy, the Divine Work. Second chapter is Theodore de Bez. Chapter three is Anne. Chapter four, where we are now, is Travel in the King's Service. And he goes first to Switzerland, and uh, Switzerland was Protestant at the time, and so they willingly uh, dedicate uh, or choose uh, to send a number of soldiers to uh, to uh, Henri de Navarre, and he goes on to Germany then, and uh, chapter four has a description of Heidelberg, and which was Protestant at the time, and uh, uh, how welcome he he is in all these places, uh, and he learns. Of course, he's learning. Uh, he's a young man, and uh, uh, so he's learning more about uh, languages and about customs and all of those things. And then the king had told him, uh, "When you're done uh, recruiting my tr- the troops I need." Uh, go ahead and travel around a little more for your own education. So the chapter five is travel for my own enlightenment. And he he decides he's going to go to uh, Italy, uh, actually to Rome. Of course, Italy wasn't Italy. It was a bunch of principalities like Germany. Uh, they were not one country, either one of them. Uh, so he goes to Rome, and there he meets a bishop whose name is Jacques David Duperon. So Duperon um, had actually met him before. He doesn't remember it. Jean does not remember this, but uh, at the reception when he published his uh, translation, annotated translation of Homer's Iliad, uh, this priest had come in to, to shake his hand and to buy a book. And uh, that was the future bishop. And when he goes to Rome, there he meets him again. And it's sort of an an immediate friendship somehow, despite the fact that one is uh, high up in the Catholic hierarchy and the other one is uh, just uh, a little... A, a little official from uh, from Navarre doing the king's scut, uh, scut work in a way, uh, but uh, so the two of them become friends, and uh, he actually goes to mass where uh, Dupont uh, preaches his sermon to him. <laughs> I mean, it's a sermon that fits everybody, but uh, Jean knows that the sermon was actually directed to him. So he gets home, and uh, of course he has written, he, he writes poems to his uh, girlfriend, uh, Anne, uh, to explain that he doesn't love her any the less because he's traveling, <laughs> but he tries to tell her that his heart is really always with her. Uh, and if I have time, I'll read that poem to you. Uh, it's sort of a, an apologetic uh, attempt to tell her that uh, he's having a great old time, but uh, but he's really his attention and his heart are really with her. Yeah. So uh, he gets home and he uh, uh, and he says, "Well, we've got to go to battle now. Uh, the royal tr- royal uh, royalist army is moving, and so they meet them on the battlefield, and it is by that time 1587." And it's the Battle of Coutra, C-O-U-T-R-A-S. And oddly enough, although the Royalist Army is far, far larger, the contingent of troops is probably three times the size of the opposing army from Navarre. But Henri de Navarre is a great has a wonderful military mind, and he, the way he disposes his, his few troops ends the day. So the Catholic troops retreat, <laughs> and uh, of course the uh, uh, 
Henri's uh, uh, troops um, uh, gather the spoils of the war, and uh, and that includes the bodies of some of the uh, of the noblemen who were uh, leading the uh, the charge, the Catholic charge. So the Guise forces uh, then uh, beat a retreat, and uh, uh, and of course everybody expects. Um, expect Henri to continue pressing his advantage, but instead of that, he goes back down to Navarre and stays there because he has heard that uh, the messenger he had sent to Switzerland and Germany to have the troops come in had been uh, waylaid and killed by the Guise forces and uh, told that Henri was dead. Uh, And so they had gone back home. So he uh, would have walked into a trap had he carried on the battle. So he just goes back to Navarre and bides his time. So chapter uh, chapter six is battle. Chapter seven is wedding amid turmoil, and he he marries Anne then. But um, uh, he can't enjoy his. his honeymoon for long because the king uh, orders him to come back. He has a job for him. And uh, when he gets to the royal uh, precinct, uh, he um, it's at a place called Nerac, and uh, a messenger comes in. And instead of uh, stopping the messenger and, and uh, questioning him, the guards allow him right through because he says it's an urgent message. So Jean follows him in, the messenger, thinking there's something amiss here. And sure enough, the guy uh, uh, goes straight for the king, and Jean sees him draw a knife. He has a, a document, a, a parchment in one hand, and the knife pulled out of his uh, jerkin um, and right hidden behind the document as he strides forward. So Jean uh, runs and grabs him and another another courtier uh, who's nearby joins in and the two of them save the king's life. So so the king lives to fight another day, uh, but he also sends Jean into Paris as a spy to find out what the conditions are in the city because it's under the, the uh, rulership of the Guise. Uh, the king, King Henry III, is um, is more or less a prisoner of the Guise who are uh, have taken over the government. And uh, so Jean goes in and he is busy finding out who is actually in authority in uh, Paris. And it is uh, city fathers who are Catholic and very much in league with the uh, the Guise. And the and by the way, the King of uh, Spain is directing a lot of this also, and lending troops to the Guise. And the the King of uh, Spain at that time was Philip II, Felipe Segundo. Um, and Philip uh, has ambitions of marrying. Um, one of his daughters to uh, to Henry of uh, Henry the Third, who is, happens to have the same name as Henry of Navarre, um, uh, who is single, and uh, uh, if he can, if Philip can introduce a Spanish wife, he figures he can take over France, which has been the ambition of the uh, of the Spaniards all along. So um, anyway, uh, Jean, uh, being uh, untrained as a spy, gives himself away and uh, uh, is captured and imprisoned in the Bastille. And he uh, is wasting away there. He's there for quite a long time. And so uh, that chapter is called See Paris and and Die. See Paris and die. Then chapter 10 is prison, death, and confession. And the death doesn't happen to be his, but his his uh, cellmates. And uh, he does 
confessed because he assumes he confesses to the, his cellmate. Uh, he assumes he's going to die, um, and so he tells uh, the cellmate who he is and what he's doing. But uh, Du Perron, the bishop, uh, has been assigned to the king, Henri III, so Henry III. Uh, and so he is around, and he knows that uh, Spond has been captured and is in the Bastille and probably uh, being tortured uh, and so forth. And he is tortured once, but uh, he is not put on the, uh, the rack because that would have ruined his, uh, him, his uh, body. I mean, his joints would have been torn apart. So uh, he's just beaten and uh, pretends to uh, to faint, and so they take him back uh, to his cell without uh, going any further. And they had found not- found out nothing that they didn't already know anyway. Uh, so anyway, uh, Duperon gets him out, uh, pulls the, the requisite strings uh, to get him out, and so he manages, he recovers, and then the, uh, the king... Uh, goes back into battle and is winning all over the place and he be- he uh, surrounds Paris and besieges the city so the uh, Parisians had run out of uh, supplies and are starving to death so um, all this time uh, this religion problem uh, has been hanging in the air and uh, the King of Navarre is in the Valois line, and he is also a Bourbon, a Bourbon. Uh, so he is the, in direct line to uh, of the uh, throne of France, so he would be king. Uh, but he cannot be king because only Catholics can be king. So... Uh, Jean keeps saying to him, uh, you know, you ought to convert to Catholicism uh, because you are the the logical successor to the throne. And sure enough, um, the the, the king of France, Henri III, well, he is sort of... being used as a puppet uh, by the Guise, and uh, he is uh, dragged out of, he's, he's a prisoner, really. Uh, he's taken out of Paris, and so he is in, in outside of Paris, but uh, he, he, can, he still has the power to convoke a uh, conference, and so he does so, and uh, the two top Guise people uh, come to uh, to see what the heck this is all about, because as far as they know, he has no power, and so what is he doing convoking a conference? Uh, but he has set it up, the king, Henry III, has set it up so that uh, there are assassins waiting for for the Guise brothers, and so they, uh, they are assassinated. And then in revenge, uh, Henry III is assassinated. So there is nobody, nobody who is in direct line to the throne left. So no Valois except for Henry of Navarre. But the Guise are going to put up a, 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 a distant relative instead. Who happens, uh, he's an old man and he dies. <laughs> but still the Guise don't give up. Uh, but uh, finally... The king put before this, this choice, this burning choice. There's nobody, nobody but the king of Navarre left in the direct line to the throne. He has all the claims except for religion, and so he finally takes, he makes the choice to convert, and so he sends Jean to the parliament. Uh, to inform them that the king is taking instruction in Catholicism. And uh, so Jean gets on his horse, leaves his family again. By that time, he has two children. 
and uh, uh, he heads out uh, to uh, from Nerac to uh, to Paris, and on the way he stops overnight in Tours, and uh, he's walking across the plaza there when uh, the priest, there was a priest in Paris when he was a spy there, uh, who had, uh, he had gone into a little church close to the gate of Paris, one of the gates, uh, to ask for directions because he was supposed to meet uh, the other Huguenot spies uh, in a tavern, a certain tavern. And so he goes in and he asks the priest there uh, for directions to that tavern. And the priest uh, looks at him and says, where are you from? You you have a Navarre accent. (laughs) And he uh, he makes his excuses, oh yes, my mother was from there, and so on. And, uh, but the the priest uh, keeps his eye on him, his hostile eye, as he leaves the church, and it was that very priest who then later betrays him, and so he spends that time in prison in the Bastille. Okay, so as he walks across the plaza in Tura, uh, that same priest happens to be there and denounces him immediately to the guards, and the guards grab him and they put him in prison in Tura. But, uh, he is visited by, uh, he. by the way, he has a letter signed by the king with the king's royal uh, seal on it that he'd had in an inner breast pocket when the guards had sort of quickly searched him, and they didn't find the document. So he has the proof of what he says he is, namely an envoy of the king of Navarre to the parliament of Paris. A parliament of France, really. Uh, and uh, so he is armed with that, uh, and uh, he is visited by a priest uh, while he is in uh, the cell, and it, it, the priest is a Jesuit. The Jesuits are a brand new order at the time. And they they start talking to each other, and uh, and they strike up a friendship, too. Uh, and uh, Jean then tells him who he is and what he is doing. And so the Jesuit says, I will take your document to the bishop. And before they behead you, uh, because you uh, were a, a spy caught again, uh, since you're not a spy, you're a royal envoy, uh, I will take your document to the bishop here in Tours, who will get you out of this this uh, conundrum? And so, once again, he escapes. But uh, the Jesuit, meanwhile, he has had a, do- a, a conversation about religion, and he is really on the point of conversion at that point. But um, he, uh, well, the, he gets the king to uh, abjure his uh, Protestantism in, at uh, Saint-Denis, which is where uh, most of the uh, kings of France uh, declare their uh, their uh, intention to become the king. And uh, so uh, he, the king of Navarre is already being greeted by the my Parisians as the king of France. But the, the sad thing is, and that, that chapter is called Conversion and Consequences. There remain three more chapters. Uh, what happens to the king is that his, his Protestant friends, who would have laid, they, they would have laid down their lives for him any day. They were friends and loyal to him to the death. Uh, they all desert him and revile him for having converted. And Jean then converts also. And then all kinds of things happen. And I will leave that for for you who have been listening all this time to me, <laughs> poor souls, uh, uh, to, uh, to find out for yourself because the book is available at Amazon. Under, uh, uh, if you uh, enter Florence Byam Weinberg, 
uh, you will get all of my books, or if you put in Florence Byam Weinberg, The Choice, you will get right to that book. And it's both a Kindle book, an e-book, uh, and a, uh, uh, a paperback. So uh, I trust that after all this, you may be interested in it if you are history buff. Wow. That, that's just uh, what a riveting story i loved every minute of uh every moment of it uh, what a terrific uh terrific story and uh just where you go with it and and the telling of it was just great i don't want to interrupt you if you uh if, you, if you're still going there but don't spoil the uh the next point now, because we we still don't even know what the choice was is the choice uh, uh, uh the choice was between being catholic uh, or protestant Except for the religion, so it sounds like an easy, easy choice to me uh, to make. Yeah, it wasn't it, because the hatred between right. uh, between the Protestant Catholics, especially after the Saint Bartholomew massacre, uh, was so fierce uh, that uh, the, the choice had become very, very uh, hard for uh, for Henri. And furthermore, he had these. Uh, these fanatical friends of his, fanatical Protestant friends, and uh, he he feared that he would lose them. Boy, did he ever! Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there they, you go. But for me, you know, the uh, the choice to uh, to make, uh, I mean, uh, just a clear uh, control of the uh, again, and that's uh, that's uh, that's a story for another another day. But I mean, uh, you know, to me, I I agree. With his friend, uh, you know that the choice was to to become a Catholic, and uh, and and you take it from there. But we'll see how it turns out. What a story, Doc! I mean, just w what a wonderful job you did on this. Well, thank you. Uh, the uh, the king, uh, he became Henry the Fourth, of course, yep. and he is known as Henry the Great or Henry the Good, and he stopped that war. Uh, with the Edict of Nantes, uh, this document that was drawn up and that just simply decreed this war is over. Because both religions are going to be tolerated from here on out in France, period. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. Uh, but he was assassinated. Henry IV was assassinated in 1610. Uh, he came to the throne of France. Uh, let me see, in 1589. And uh, so he didn't have very, uh, not quite a decade. Uh, no, not quite 20 years. Um, 89, 99, uh, yeah. So 1610, he was assassinated. Amazing. And uh, uh, and they, he, he was the greatest king that ever ruled in this little Protestant king <laughs> who took over the government. I mean, his, uh, he was a, a brilliant uh, military technician, and he was a brilliant uh, administrator as well. So, uh, his, and his uh, son was Louis XIII, and his grandson, Louis XIV. Amazing. What a story. Yeah. What, a, what a wonderful story. Congratulations on this. And it's called The Choice for those listening. Uh, just a reminder to buy The Choice at Amazon or anywhere they sell great books. But Amazon is the way to go. Right, Doc? Right. Uh, so Barnes & Noble, any bookstore will get it for you because uh, it is universally available. Just a great – and that is your 16th book. 16th book. Uh, just amazing. What, what, what a productive – what a productive uh, senior 
uh, hood you are having. Uh, just amazing. You know, so many people, you, it's, it's hard to get a 25-year-old to uh, get off their duff and, uh, and do something. Uh, the, the, the work that you've put in in the last couple of years since I've known you is just is unbelievable. I mean, it's just constant and, and never-ending. But what, what a great job, and I guess that keeps you sharp. And that's a lesson for everyone. And uh, do you feel you're doing your best work now, or uh, or is it is it consistent with your other work? Where do you feel you are? Because that's outstanding. And and before the Alamo was uh, uh, certainly outstanding. Um, where do you feel you? Yes, are well, I, with each book I publish, I say, oh, this is the best book I ever wrote. Right. Well, <laughs> so. So it's still the it's still like that. Uh, the, uh, before the Alamo was the best book I ever wrote, and now this one. Uh, so uh, I'm afraid that this one will not be nearly as popular. And the, before the Alamo is is not a bestseller, darn it. Uh, <laughs> but it is more popular uh, because it is a local uh, story, and people in in San Antonio and people in Texas in general are interested in it. Um, uh, the uh, you guys there in New York, by the way, uh, turned the book down. That is before the Alamo because it was too local. Yeah. <laughs> but every, the thing is, everybody in the world knows about the Battle of the Alamo. Yeah, it's thanks true. to Hollywood and uh, John Wayne uh, right. and John Wayne. Yeah, not <laughs> that that was an accurate depiction of the Alamo, but uh, that was a that was Hollywood's version of the Alamo. Yes, indeed. Yes, it, it was full of the uh, myth. It was the myth of the Alamo. Uh, that uh, uh, one of the, the Hispanic ladies at the turn of the of uh, uh, the uh, 19th to the 20th century made her living by telling stories about the Alamo, and they were believed. But she wasn't even there when the battle took place. She'd been in the Alamo. Earlier on, she was the wife of one of the, the guys who uh, who left uh, to go see if they could recruit some some help. So I'm sure she was not a traitor or anything like that. But uh, she just wasn't there, and she claimed to uh, to have been a nurse uh, in the Alamo, um, and uh, uh, she was supposed to be the nurse of Bowie. Uh, who uh, who was ill? Uh, he had gotten something like uh, uh, cholera or something of that sort, and he was dying during that battle. Uh, but he was not nursed uh, by this lady, Madame Cand Candelaria, she called herself. Um, uh, she was not there to nurse him. It was uh, one of the Navarre daughters uh, who. And notice the similarity of name. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, Gertrude Navarre who nursed him, and uh, that's been adequately proven uh, by eyewitnesses and people who knew uh, all about it. Uh, and uh, Madame Candelaria was telling stories about um, how. Uh, um, oh. No, I can't bring up his name. Uh, Davy Crockett. Yeah. Uh, Davy Crockett uh, was uh, standing outside the church door uh, of the Alamo, uh, killing. He had already uh, taken his one shot from his musket, and uh, he was uh, knocking, uh, knocking the Mexican soldiers dead. And there were there were a dozen or so corpses around him by the time. Uh, he was finally fatally shot. And, uh, of course, nobody can kill a dozen uh, people by hitting them in the head with a rifle butt, but that's what she told. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, painters, all the painters who were painting uh, the scene of the uh, battle uh, have uh, Davy Crockett standing outside the, the uh, door of the church with his uh, uh, holding his rifle barrel and uh, swinging the the butt of the rifle so it's got to be true if it's <laughs> <laughs> she said it and the painters backed her up on it 
Yeah, right. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, everybody in the world knows about the Battle of the Alamo, at least they know the myth. Uh, and uh, so the book, my book, is not about the battle per se, it's, but it is about uh, how people were living before the Alamo. The, the lost history, Texas is what this is, that uh, this book is about. And uh, so the little girl is born in the beginning of the book and grows up during the book uh, and is a nurse. She, she is a nurse in the, during the battle um, and survives. Uh, so she, uh, she is the center of the story, but she's also telling uh, about what's happening, namely the, the reasons why the battle was fought. And most people don't really know the real reason why the battle was fought. Yeah. And the uh, General Santa Ana, who was also the president of Mexico at the time, and he had indeed usurped that office um, uh, illegally and become dictator. And so he was no uh, no sweet little guy. He, he was a... Uh, uh, an ambitious SOB, uh, but he uh, realized that Texas was being populated by Anglos who were just usurping. I mean, they were coming in and seizing land and uh, deposing, I mean, dispossessing uh, their actual owners who were, uh, of course, Mexican citizens because Texas was part of Mexico. Um, he was uh, up there to get rid of the Angles so that he could save Texas from uh, from being absorbed by the influx of these people that were called filibusters. The original meaning of filibuster was squatter. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was not a nice thing, to, yeah. a nice word. Right. <laughs> anyway, so he had a just cause. He was the the the, the president of Mexico, uh, and so and he was trying to save his territory from being overrun by people who had no right to be there, who had just come in and grabbed land and grabbed property. Amazing. Yeah, just uh, just amazing. <laughs> uh, both books. And, if everyone, go ahead. I'm sorry, Doc. I don't mean to cut you. No, I was just going to say, and on the other side, uh, the filibusters had gotten together and decided uh, they were going to uh, to take Texas and make it into an independent country. And so they were fighting for freedom, liberty, and independence. So there you go. There there goes your myth. Wow. They, they fought to the death for freedom, for liberty, and for independence. Yeah, right. And what what right did they have for that territory? So the uh, population of San Antonio at the time uh, didn't flood into the Alamo to help them out because they were very suspicious of those Anglos who didn't speak their language, but and yet they were trying to take over. Um, but at the same time, they most of them didn't. Uh, they most of them hated Santa Ana because he was a dictator who had usurped uh, the uh, top office in the country. So there they were. They were caught between these two uh, unwanted causes. Amazing. So I could go on and on. So I'll, I'll shut up. So <laughs> well, listen, it's just uh, amazing, both stories, but. Let me let me just remind everyone to buy the choice and buy before the Alamo as well. Uh, but the choice uh, is, is just uh, to me. I was just riveted every uh, every step of the way. Doc, I want to congratulate you once again on on your sixteenth book. Your sixteenth book, that being the choice. Uh, just before you go, just give the full title, the subtitle again. The choice. The choice, comma, Jean de Spond, Kingmaker. Great. And it has uh, the the uh, uh, the illustration, the cover illustration has a, a, a medieval castle, which is of course uh, where they they were living in medieval buildings at that time. 
Uh, so it's not anachronistic. And up above are in the clouds uh, are uh, portraits that uh, and uh, and a young man uh, of that same period with a hat on that uh, suits that and one of those fancy uh, collars uh, that both of these uh, these busts have. Uh, so the illustrations are uh, of contemporary people. Our subject today has been the choice. You've been listening to Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg talk about her latest book, her 16th book, and it sounds terrific. I just kind of tried to stay out of the way as she explained this wonderful story. Frank McKay urging everyone, urging everyone to get this book, and we'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show.